You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome to this episode of The Zeitgeist. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. And we are extremely pleased to have with us today, uh, Joe Joffe, who is professor of the practice of international affairs and a senior fellow at the Kissinger Center at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Uh, he is a publisher of one of Germany's most respected newspapers, Die Zeit, and he is a regular author of op-eds in some of the world's leading publications. Near and dear to our heart at AICGS, he is a former trustee of this institute. Um, and there are too many other accomplishments uh, to okay. list uh, if Enough we get down to discussion. <laughs> Welcome, Joe Joffe. Thank you. <laughs> and this is, by the way, the 50th episode of this podcast. So we hit the half century mark with you. And, um, you know, we're speaking today on December 15th, one week after Olaf Scholz was sworn in as German chancellor, mm -hmm. uh, delivered his first government declaration today before going off to a, a European Union summit meeting. There's a 177-page coalition agreement. I want to take a little different approach today, though, because usually a new government takes office and we celebrate the values that bind us in the transatlantic community, um, and we reiterate in sort of you know a mantra of the things that uh, have formed the core of our relationship for decades. But I want to come at this the other direction. Uh, do you think there are fundamental differences of interest that we need to be talking more openly about between Germany and the United States? Look, <clears throat> this is, um, first of all, thank you for not going, that you, that you won't ask me about the 177 pages. I haven't read it, and I won't read it. Uh, it's not something that you are actually required to read because um, 177 pages of declarations are usually not very enlightening, let's put it this way, about what a government will do, especially a, a three-party coalition government will do. Now, but to your, to your, basic, to your basic question, you know, the... the I think there's a basic truth, if I may say so, that's been around, um, you know, since the beginning of the German-American relationship after after World War II. There are solid common interests which persist, and there are solid differences in interests which persist as well. And we can we can run through through some of the examples. Uh, it's simply, I mean, on the most general philosophical level. It's a difference between a medium power like Germany, which is not really a strategic actor in spite of it, its fabulous riches being the fourth largest economy in the world and all that. Um, but with a, with a limited bailiwick, whereas the United States forever and ever has been a global power with a global, global interest uh, basis and military presence around the world and having to worry not just about Europe as Germany does but <clears throat> about the whole planet so to speak especially about 
two if it's um, the, it's two key rivals, which are as we know, uh, Russia and 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 um, and China. So um, that's the, the the philosophical underpinning, so to speak, um, solid interests and um, <clears throat> enduring differences in interests. Mm -hmm. So uh, when when we talk about those interests, uh, whether they differ or they're they're shared, they're also changing, aren't they? Um, do you do you see Germany's perception of its interests evolving as the international situation becomes more complicated? Um, yes and no. Uh, first of all, no. There is, um, you know, the geography is one enduring fixture. In, in international politics. And as I said, you know, the United States has to worry about the entire world. Germany has to worry about its immediate neighborhood. What does that mean? It means it has to establish and maintain a set of balances which do not, you know, add up to kind of decisive yes or no, or this way or that way. What are these balances? What it's it's Europe, the EU, where the Germans will maintain a close relationship with the French, even though there's another game going on underneath, which is who is going to run the show. And for all the talk about Franco-German couple and uh, marriage, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, the two are 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 subterraneously, if you wish. Um, vying for leadership of Europe. So <clears throat> that's one thing. Then <clears throat> we move east, where now we get to some of the changes that you have in mind, I think, where the threat analysis from Russia is obviously has, has intensified, has, been, has, 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 has risen. But <clears throat> the Germans will not they, they will not stop balancing in the being where they are in the middle of Europe, between Europe, the West, the United States, and the Russians, and further on, of course, China. As a result of which you have an enduring tension between, between opposing interests. And these, and these tensions keep cropping up and it will crop, crop up again for, let's just use one concrete example that um, fabulous Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which previous governments have pushed very hard, especially Chancellor Merkel. And where I don't see that they will, the Germans will make a decision against the pipeline, against certifying it for fear of uh, provoking the Russians. Mm -hmm. So that's a perfect example of the kind of balancing game that German foreign policy is is uh, iconic. Yeah. But there are others too, obviously. Yeah, uh, you know, with respect to Nord Stream 2, uh, the, the approval is still in a, you know, kind of bureaucratic, technocratic process. Yeah. Uh, but ultimately, um, there will be, um, you know, a, a political uh, decision uh, uh, made. Um, it, it seems to me that the short term, the longer Nord Stream 2 remains unapproved, it is a source of potential leverage for yes. uh, 
for the German government uh, toward Moscow. And that evaporates as soon as you make the decision one way or the other. Well, you're right on a, on a kind of logical, logical level. Yes, you're right. Uh, the other logic points in the opposite direction, which is uh, the pressure uh, has been mounting on the part of Moscow. And they have signaled to the Germans by withholding, uh, by not replenishing its, uh, uh, its um, um, you know, storage of, of natural gas in Western Europe by making all kinds of threatening noises, uh, by watching gleefully how gas prices are rising. Um, <clears throat> so my the upshot for me is, I don't think the Germans are going to nix the pipeline, especially since you add another legal complication. I think that thing is what costs are about 10 billion euros. And if you do that, you're gonna end up with lots of suits, lots of damage suits by all the members of the consortium. So the necessity to, 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 to yield to the energy dependence on the, part, uh, on the part of Germany, plus the pain of potential heavy penalties make me predict it's going to be the gas is going to start flowing. So it's the opposite of what you're saying, if I may say so. Right? Well, it, depend, it depends on the time frame you're looking at. I mean, you, I, I think you may be uh, right that you know, the, the pipeline is built. It's hard to imagine, frankly, it not entering service. Um, but there's also a, a process in which you know, there's a European Union um, dimension to this. And in the same way that there would be suits if the German government essentially tried to expropriate by um, uh, blocking uh, the service of the pipeline, you'll also have countries like Poland and I'm sure some others making use of their mechanisms uh, within the EU to, to try to prevent, delay, string out this process, which could last a year or longer, it seems. Well, um, technically speaking, you're right, except remember, what that pipeline was supposed to do. It was precisely to circumvent any veto power, the um, transit countries, traditional transit countries, especially Poland and Ukraine uh, have, have, have had. Therefore, the, the <clears throat> Nord Stream 1 and 2 circumvent these countries and um, go, you know, taking the gas directly from Russia to Germany. Uh, therefore, I think badly, badly uh, damaging whatever veto power these, these East Europeans have. And that's where we're moving from, you know, dollars and cents or euros and cents to grand strategic issues. I, I personally think to have built that pipeline, you know, that circumvents Germany's Eastern Europe, uh, Eastern neighbors, was was a grievous mistake, um, and it kind of, if you want to be cynical about it, rings hollow. Then it rings hollow to appeal to European solidarity and European unity when there is this kind of cold, cold, cold-eyed national interest on the part of the part of the, the Germans, not to be beholden 
to these East European transit countries. Plus, you know, there's also theoretically some, some commercial gain in it because both, we always forget there are two Nord Stream, Nord Stream pipelines. The two of them will give yeah, Germany kind of a key, key function in, in, the, in the gas market. Um, you know, once gas will be distributed all over and the Germans are getting paid, transit fees, etc. So the upshot of this is watch national interests and don't listen so closely to invocations of European solidarity. Yeah. And push um, commitment. You know, there, there's an irony here and that is, you know, for, for decades, um, uh, one part of German foreign policy has been that economic interdependence brings a sort of stability uh, with it. Uh, and that's also been uh, true with respect to the Soviet Union and to Russia. Um, but what I think German decision makers, especially those who have uh, supported Nord Stream 2, have, for have forgotten, uh, perhaps, or ignored, is that that same principle applies to Ukraine and Poland. You know, that they're having an economic interdependence and linkage to Russia was also a stabilizing factor um, uh, for them, which they are now going to be deprived of um, uh, once uh, you, know, you have the infrastructure to circumvent um, yeah. uh, their, their traditional role. Well, it obviously undercuts the strategic you know, clout of these, of these two, two just named countries. And um, I think given the pre previous history where the Ukrainians were squabbling with the Russians and uh, somebody or other was shutting off supplies, I think from a purely national interest, it makes perfect sense for the Germans to, uh, to be independent of these um, veto transit countries. Um, what's, what's, what, what's the upshot? Well, you know, in the crunch, national interest beats European interests and European solidarity. That's what international politics is all about, isn't it? Yeah. Joe, are you um, mentioned earlier the coalition agreement of the new government, um, which uh, I admit to having read part of. Oh, and uh, and one of the things that it calls for, you talking about dependence and interdependence, it calls for reducing Germany's strategic dependence on China. And I think we can assume that um, that includes reducing the level of, of commercial interdependence. For example, it says that in, you know, in, in no uncertain terms that the comprehensive agreement on investment between the EU and China can't be ratified now. And, and we were talking earlier about the fact that maybe interests can change. Do you, do you yes, think that yes, when it comes to yes, China, that Germany's interests are changing and that it's so it's in the country's interest to do this kind of reorientation of its exports and investments away from China? And if it does that, I mean, should it just could Germany or any other country that that does that, you know, be become the car target of countermeasures from Beijing and is which could really have an economic sting? And is that something you think this new government is willing to risk? There's always a on the one hand, on the other hand. On the, on the one hand, I think at last, last look, when I last looked, China is now Germany's most important trading partner. Uh, so that, that kind of puts a break on whatever harsh measures you want to take. That's, that's, that's the, on the, this is on the one hand. On the other hand, let's emphasize what's new in this game, which is, that 
Europe and Germany have become a lot more critical of China, being well aware of what the Chinese are up to. Um, and thus, the most interesting indication of what I'm talking about is of all parties, the Greens, you know, which, which started out as a pacifist party, are now deploying the, the, the harshest language against both China and Russia. That's interesting. And that's a, that's a, that's a shift, it's, 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 a, it's, it's an adaptation, not a shift, but adaptation certainly of rhetoric and certainly of, 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 of um, you know, awareness of where, where Europe and Germany are. Having said that, my, my, I, would, I would still argue that, <clears throat> let's move back a step. I think to, to approach this, I think American dreams of, of recruiting the Germans or the Europeans into a kind of tight alliance against both China and Russia, that's not going to pan out. Um, Germans will always want to protect the Eastern flank and therefore will always be behave wisely, modestly toward Russia. How can you, as far as China is concerned, as I repeat myself, the largest trading partner, there's limits to how much, uh, how harsh German policy can, can react. But again, let me emphasize, there's a significant change in rhetoric. It's much more critical of, of both of them. But, and why are the Greens doing this? Well, they may, have, they may be or may have been a pacifist party, but they're also a human rights party. And so it's interesting how they're not justifying their, their new harshness in terms of strategic necessity, but in terms of human rights. Uh, what's gonna happen? I think there'll be partial, partial shifts in policy. There will be, they will pay more attention to technology theft, penetration of the European and German economy by Chinese capital. But to go back to the initial question, I do not think that, that the US is gonna be able to recruit Europe into a kind of Cold War alliance against, against both of these revisionist powers. But, but do you say that because you're skeptical of whether the German public uh, is ready uh, for the country to, to adopt a more coercive approach to international trade and economic policy? Because if you look at the EU more broadly, you can see some things coming out of the EU in the last year, which on the trade and economic side could be called they would call it anti-coercion, but it sort of is a first cousin of coercion. I mean, do you think, I mean, if, if it's couched in the, if it's done more broadly uh, with, the, with the other EU member states, do you think um, that would make, um, that would nudge Germany a little farther in this direction towards being a bit more coercive? It depends on who else is playing the game. Uh, by the way, I emphasize you no know, value issues. Well, in a democracy's value issues can have strategic consequences. So you don't talk realpolitik, you know, which is somehow, somehow unsavory, but you can take value politik and, and that will allow you to legitimize harsher me measures. I don't, you know, 
when we talk about the when we talk about Europe, whom do we talk about? We talk about three three nations: France, Britain, and Germany. Of course, we know Britain is out, but Britain is still an important player. So if we think about harsher or what you call more coercive measures, I want to look at all three of them. Uh, do we see a more acute willingness on the part of London or Paris to tangle with either the Russians or the, or the Chinese? I haven't quite seen it yet, but it could, it, it could happen. There is, on the most general level, there's an increased threat perception from both countries. And that's going to have an impact on, pol on policy, except I don't think it's going to be a drastic, brutal uh, a turnaround. It's going to be, uh, you know, on the margin, tit for, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, without alien while avoiding to, to alienate either one of them. That's my take on that. But let me, let me emphasize, the climate of opinion has changed in Europe. It, is, it has become, you know, policy has become more worried about these two huge powers on the, on the Eastern flank, as it were, of Germany. To come back to the to the Russia um, Ukraine um, uh, situation, um, one of the things that strikes me is that Moscow has very few tools left in its toolbox. Um, uh, it's, that what? it's what? Has very few tools left it in its box. In its box. Okay. And and the um, you be, because the Russian economy is not the kind of attractive force that it uh, that it was sort of division of Europe and 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 so these kind of, these normal persuasive soft power means um, are not at their disposal so what you see is uh, a, a Russian reversion uh, to hard power as its tool yeah. at a first yeah. and last yes um, and and it and it and no one else in the European um, level is buying this except perhaps Alexander Lukashenko and the leaders of the Donetsk and the Luhansk uh, People's Republics. Mm -hmm. uh, so th there's there's a a disconnect here though because Europeans uh, uh, have an aversion to using uh, speaking the language of hard power and using the yes. tools of hard power, and right. that's increasingly the only language Moscow is speaking. True. Um, the, I mean, the mo to me, the most fascinating player in the global game at this point is Russia. It is on all accounts a weak, a weak player. Its economy is, I think, not even the size of Italy or Canada. Something. But we, the West, have met, have met a very skilled, very talented player in uh, you know poker player in, in in Moscow Vladimir Putin who knows where the where, where to find a weakness how to poke poke into that weakness and how to get um, how to get concessions out of this game um, what think about the most serious issue a strategic issue in, in Europe right now which is um, 
either the, the, the invasion of Ukraine by some 175,000 troops that are amassing uh, on Ukraine's eastern border. Um, but I don't think Putin has to do that. I think it's enough to set up this enormous threat in the knowledge that the Europeans and the Americans will not react in any harsh manner against it. Can you imagine the US 82nd Airborne landing in, 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 in Ukraine or <laughs> some German panzer divisions moving forward uh, to, to establish a kind of equilibrium of threat, threat of threats? No. So what are we gonna do? We're gonna, we, the EU is now talking sanctions. But how do you sanction an economy which is not really immersed in this interdependence network we talked about before, namely Russia? How do you get them? Where do you, where do you hit them? We're gonna stop buying their gas? Well, we are not, are we? We're not gonna stop. We're not gonna use our troops. We're not gonna use our hard power. We'll, we'll be, we'll, we'll ramp up our language and we'll pass some sanctions. And remember, if you're in the EU, you have to get 27 to say yes. And in terms of, you know, realpolitik or, you know, grand strategy, 27 is less than one. You don't have the kind of uh, decisiveness. You know what, what Alexander Hamilton, I think, uh, wrote in, what, in the 10th Federalist, you know, why do we need a president? A strong president. Well, he has to be able to act with dispatch, decision, and secrecy. That's why you need one. If you want to be, yeah. you want to be a big boy. In that respect, the, the EU is not; it cannot be a big boy. It'll be the lowest common denominator. So, um, uh, if I were Putin, I would not be impressed. I would put maximum pressure on on, on Ukraine. I don't have to invade them. I just have to make them my client state. That's all. And maybe firm up control of the, of the Southeast. Mm -hmm. um, it's, the EU is rich, enormous. It's the second largest economy before the Chinese. It has with Britain, you know, 500 million, million uh, population. It has on paper as many troops under arms as, as the United States and the, and, the, and, and, the, and the Russians have. But 27 is less than one, and therefore no strategic act. 27 is less than one. So let's maybe we wrap up on the one. Um, <laughs> you know, this, uh, a government has taken office in Berlin that has uh, you know, promised themselves and the country um, a, um, a refreshed, uh, future-oriented uh, view of Germany's role and of uh, and of bringing energy to the task of reforming the German economy uh, and modernizing it. Uh, what's your level of optimism um, or pessimism as you look at the ambitions uh, that the start of this uh, this new government, um, and especially when you compare it to some of these international structural factors we've just been talking about? You know, maybe we should co compare it to the infrastructure bill that was first 
mooted by Trump and now uh, is being put into, into law by, by, by Biden. Um, I don't quite understand how the government as such, even with a trillion dollars, can, can rejuvenize and dynamize uh, an economy, make it more inventive, make it more flexible, etc. Um, I, I don't know how this is going to work. All I can see is that the, the, that the, the government is borrowing more money and acquiring more power in, 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 in redistributing it. And um, uh, these infrastructure projects in the United States don't give me great faith because you know it's going to be pork barrel politics. It's going to be which district gets what. If you get this, I want to get that. Prices for these services will ramp up. Um, strong union power, what have you. So I have to, I have to kind of give up on this. I don't know how governments, unless you're the Chinese government, totalitarian government, can actually dynamize an economy which, well, we could do with a bit more dynamism, more inventiveness. I, I frankly don't know. Do you? Well, yeah, that's uh, that's that's the question. I mean, I think what uh, what what I see in this uh, government's programs is, for example, in uh, transforming Germany's energy sector. Um, on the one hand, quite detailed proposals and targets, yeah. Yeah. Um, but some huge impediments. Um, there's a promise to speed up the approval of of projects uh, to generate, you know, to install renewable um, electricity generation. Um, that sounds great in the abstract, but when you think about each one of the um, uh, necessary steps to either to to build a a, a windmill, uh, to install uh, solar energy, um, and and to simplify the approval, um, I see a very rocky road to get there. Well, of course, because look, let me give you an example of history, which which makes the point. Back in the '30s. Germany built a high-speed train from Hamburg to Berlin called the Flying Hamburg. And that speed record was not uh, broken by the current you know, German you know, Deutsche Bahn until the late, late 90s. Why? Well, back then, governments didn't have to worry about em environmental impact statements, about multiple suits brought forward against you know, noise, you know, noise abatement. Yeah, acquiring eminent domain. So these, these governmental projects are in, invariably get, get submersed into the normal democratic rule of law game. And it takes, it takes years and years and years. And another example, okay, we want renewables. All right, so then we're gonna put up wind farms in the North Sea. We still have to get that stuff from the North Sea back into Bavaria. And so we have to build enormous, like, you know, engage in an enormous building project of building power lines. But power lines cross somebody's land. Right. And they can, you know, they can kill certain or displace certain, certain species of animals. Um, so this is just one example how this, what, you know, this very good idea is you know, to put lots of money into 
into, into economic in, uh, re renovation or innovation invariably founders against the democratic process, which is not to say that, you know, let's scratch democracy. We can't. That's how it works. And you have the same problem in the United States. Uh, if you think about the Keystone Pipeline, et cetera. Um, it's not so easy in a, in, a, in a game of many, many, many players to, um, to push through governmental projects the way the Chinese can. They don't have to worry about being sued, taken, taken to court by some kind of, by one town or the other, anyway. Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm just skeptical um, how, how we can, um, you know, refurbish, re, re, re-energize our economy in, in, in countries where democracy and the rule of law. Yeah. And that's not an argument against democracy and the rule of law. Let me emphasize that. Just well, and that's what can do. And that's and we live in this gap between ambitions um, and the exigencies and requirements of of democratic procedures um, that are that are uh, you know uh, really nothing we can uh, we can or want to do away with. So uh, that will keep us busy um, as we as we accompany the uh, the work of of a new government and uh, the the changes it may bring in the transatlantic relationship. Joe Joffe, I want to thank you for being our guest uh, today, and uh, we look forward to keeping in touch. And uh, the best. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at aicgs.org, or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at aicgs. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.